This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on the Finding Human program on 101.9 High FM radio. Today, my guest is Dr. Percy Krause. Percy was with me on, on January the 30th, and I think uh, you would all really enjoy listening to her previous podcast. So please have a look under High FM, Finding Human Podcasts, and look for Percy Krause. It's spelled K-R-A-U-S-Z-Z, and you'll find it there. And if you want to see Percy herself, go onto Dr. Les Glassman's YouTubes, and you'll see Percy and her photographs as well, which which are really seeing. Percy, today I'm actually going to call our session today, our topic is Touched by a Heavenly Hand, because I think your story, you wrote the story, Touched by a Heavenly Hand, but in actual fact, your whole story of how you came to Israel is all touched by a heavenly hand. So that's what I would like to call our topic. Just let me tell you a bit about Percy. She grew up and was educated in England. She fled Germany as a small child with her parents. She was married with three sons, trained as a social worker and organization development consultant. She made Alia with her family in 1975 and was working for the Ministry of Welfare and Social Work and in Jerusalem. She has a PhD in psychology and management consultant. She is a writer. You can pick up her a lot of her writing on the Ezra website or I go under look under Percy Crowds and you will see her. Percy, last time you were on, you sang and our my our listeners loved it. And I came across this shamanic quote. It said, in many shamanic societies, if you came to a medicine person complaining of being disheartened, dispirited, or depressed, they would ask you one of four questions. When did you stop dancing? When did you stop singing? And when did you stop being enchanted by stories? When did you stop being comforted by the sweet territory of silence? That's from Gabriella Roth. And I think you you would have done very well in the shamanic societies. <laughs> How are you today, Percy? Oh, Hashem. Uh, all the better for seeing you, Sue. You look so lovely. And you've got and that beautiful you. ring with a, with a sort of a lovely blue stone that goes with everything that you're, you're wearing. So, and, and you're in sorry. my favorite color. You, you're in a, a pale lilac. I love it. Yes. Thank you. Percy, tell me a little bit about your. the last time we spoke. We actually ended up in the Isle of Man. But I would like you just to take us back a little bit to how your mother got you onto a boat at Dunkirk. Oh, well, all right. Um, that, that's, that's a story of remarkable uh, resilience, which is actually a word which I have learned during this terrible war that we're going through at the moment, the word is chosen, and uh, and it means resilience. Um, and and I, of course, I didn't speak Hebrew at that time when we were fleeing from Germany 
to Belgium and finally got to the beaches of Dunkirk. But I think that resilience was really what what saved us. So I think that I have mentioned that on Kristallnacht as a baby, my parents rushed upstairs to non-Jewish neighbours who were persuaded to hide us in a clothes cupboard as the Nazis were banging on the doors, screaming, Alle Judenras, all the Jews out. And so they knocked on these non-Jewish neighbors' door um, and they said, Vozinda Markovic's, you know, where is our family called Markovic? And um, these neighbors were very brave because they risked their lives if I, as a baby, would have cried. But they stood in the doorway, cool as, cool as anything, and they said, oh, the Markovic family, they left long ago. And apparently the stormtrooper Nazis, who had been breaking all the all the windows, you know, in the shawls and the houses and so on, stood there wondering, should they go and inspect the apartment or should they leave? And they hovered for a moment and Baruch Hashem, as you say, touched by a heavenly hand, they left. And so the very next day, my father, being very resourceful, managed to get my mother and I, again as a little baby, on a farmer's cart and horse who managed to get us across the border to Belgium. And my father reached Belgium and we stayed in Antwerp for two years until 1940. So by then I was just two, practically, and I remember being hoisted onto my father's shoulders. I was wearing a siren suit, which is like a large baby grow all in one. And at that time, men also had them over their clothes. And Churchill, in fact, who was the war minister in England at that time, was also famous for the siren suit that he wore when going off to see the troops. Now, the troops were being evacuated at that point because Belgium had retreated in the face of the Nazi onslaught. And the British, who had been fighting with Belgium, had to be rescued. And Churchill called it the Battle of the Hundred Small Ships. Any ship, hundreds of small ships, were asked to go to Dover, which was just across the English Channel from Dunkirk, where the British troops were being evacuated. And my mother said to my father, We've missed the last boat out of the actual port of Antwerp because you wouldn't listen to me when I said the Nazis are going to follow us. So nothing, nothing unusual, is it? I don't think when a husband's not so keen on listening to what his wife has to say. So she said, now we have to run on foot to the nearest place where there is water. Where there is water, there is hope. Where is that? Hundreds of kilometers away in Dunkirk. So there I was bobbing up and down on my father's shoulders with my head resting on his felt grey hat. And my mother, who had a tough time catching up with my father because he was six foot something and she wasn't quite up to his shoulders, said, kept saying to him, Aaron, that was his name, run nicht so fast, don't run so fast, das Kind schläft, the child is sleeping. So I knew that Actually, she couldn't keep up. Even at that time, I had this sense. And my father said, come, Grina, come. Her name was Regina, Esther Rochel in, in Ivrit, but in Germany, having to have a German name, Regina, Regina, he called her Gina. Gina, come, 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 schnell, schnell, schnell. So he took no notice that I was sleeping or not sleeping. And we finally, finally got 
to the beaches of Dunkirk and flopped down on the sand. What to do? So my mother saw, I don't know if anybody has seen the trailer. I only saw the trailer of the film Dunkirk. I couldn't bear it because it did show you just what I seem to remember with the troops being en masse, being put into lines and the officers who were dressed spick and span somehow or other, evacuating the troops onto the boats. So my mother and father got out of the sand. My father put me on his shoulders and because they had seen a British officer and my mother asked the British officer, will you take us? But she, luckily she spoke English, French, German, Yiddish. So speaking English saved her. I'm trying to tell all my grandchildren, great grandchildren, learn English. It's a very, very important language. And I've actually got a picture of my great grandson at four months old on his tummy with a book of English writing and pictures in front of him. I said, <laughs> wonderful. He's studying for his psychometry to get him into university. You never start too young. Four months. <laughs> so we got there to this officer standing there and my mother said, will you take us? Impossible, madam. We are evacuating the British troops and off he went. We slopped down again in the sand and then my father saw another officer and he nudged my mother and he said, free game, free game in his best Yiddish. You know, ask him. Up we got. I was on my father's shoulders and my mother stood in front of the officer with us. Will you take us? Impossible, madam. Impossible. We're evacuating. the. And as he turned to walk away, my mother noticed that in his shiny brown leather belt was a shiny black gun. And she pulled it from his holster and held it to my head. And she said, if you do not take us, I shoot my child, my husband before your eyes. So this poor traumatized officer managed to retrieve the gun from before it went off. Thank God, otherwise I wouldn't be here telling you this story probably. From the, and from the tiny little woman, your mum. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. He picked me up off my father's shoulders, said, come, come, schnell, schnell, quick, quick, and dropped us into deep down into a boat. And my father and mother after us, and my father's hand icy cold holding mine. Well, of course, you might remember that I managed to shake his hand loose and started singing my little song up and down, up and down, and the soldiers patting me on the head. On I mean, head. I can still feel it. So that's how. That's such a beautiful story. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on the Finding Human program. My guest today is Dr. Percy Kraus, Nee Markowitz, and we are talking about what we what we decided to name, what I decided to name the topic, Touched by a Heavenly Hand. You've just heard a very short part of Percy's story, which you'll find in the podcast as well. Once she got onto that boat, she started dancing. So there she was singing and dancing, this little girl of two. Can you imagine what those soldiers must have felt seeing you? There must have been such joy for them to see, uh, you know, the, the, the livelihood, the, 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 a living little child. You know, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory said, 
To be a Jew is to be part of the most remarkable story ever lived by any people, covering more countries, more adverse circumstances, more triumphs and tragedies than any other story. Every one of us has a chapter to write in that story and hand the book on. That is what it is to be a Jew. And your story is exactly that. It's a story that has to be told. And it's so beautiful. And um, Pessy, would you like me to read your story, Touched by a Heavenly Hand? Yes, please. You're nodding your head. Uh, this is, um, Pessy wrote this story called Touched by a Heavenly Hand, and I, I loved it. Because when I was about two years old, that together with my father and mother, we managed to race through Europe in 1940, specifically from Antwerp in Belgium, trying to beat the clock as the Nazis invaded running, eye on my sh my father's shoulders, with my mother desperately trying to keep up with her tall husband, who somehow reached the shores of Dunkirk, situated between Belgium and France. This was when Churchill, the British foreign minister, put out a call for every small, big or medium-sized ship to set off and to rescue the British soldiers who had fought with Belgium, which capitulated. Bombs were dropping all around as the Nazi planes strapped the shores, terrifying soldiers and me and my parents. To cut to the core, we, or rather my mother, fluent not only in her mother tongue German, but also in English, persuaded a British officer whose gun she pulled from his holster. Holding it to my head, she threatened to shoot me, my father, and herself if he continued to refuse to take us on a boat. Holding me aloft, followed by my parents racing across the beach, mercifully, he dropped me deep down into the alleyway of a vessel. My father tried to hold my hand, but no. What did I do but run back and forth along it, only to be patted on the head a very tingling feeling by hordes of soldiers who, bemused, could not believe their eyes at seeing this little dancing, singing girl. It took my fourth-generation great-grandson to recreate a reenactment. We were all at a family event. Maybe I was a little quieter than usual, sitting on a couch, when this little four-year-old patted me on the head as he snuggled up to me. Safter on me, he said, as I melted with warmth. I love you. I felt touched by a heavenly hand that put on the head was my touch of holiness. That pat on the head was my touch of holiness. That's the most beautiful, beautiful story. You wrote it in, in January, the, the first of the second of 2024. And it's the most beautiful, beautiful story. Percy, just tell me what is happening at the moment in Israel. We were going to talk about when you got to the Isle of Man, but perhaps I would also like to move forward a bit. Let me tell me a bit about how you met, well, how you got to Israel. Tell me about it's was your husband's name Neville? Yes, yes. Neville. Okay. Tell me a bit about yes. Neville. Neville, actually. Was a youngster when the war, he was older than me by almost 10 years, but very young in spirit. In 1948, when the state was formed, 
there were many volunteers from England who got to Palestine, or Israel as it then became, in order to help to fight because it was beset by, as we know, all the Arab Arabs who would decided they don't want us to be there. They didn't want their own state. They just didn't want Jews uh, to have a Jewish state. So he smuggled himself onto a boat because his father and mother, his he was uh, the only son. He had a younger brother who didn't survive. And he was work. He had a law degree, but he's but he actually was working for the B'nai Akiva and worked with his father in the cutlery factory in Sheffield in the north of England, where they made stainless steel cutlery. So his parents would have never, never let him go, especially at that time. He smuggled himself onto the into the bowels of a ship. It's funny, I never thought of that. We both had a You're ship dead. story. Yes. Yes. He only he only told his very best friend with a vow of secrecy when his parents started to worry where was he that he could tell them once he was on his way. But his very best friend decided that he would not wait until the ship was on its way to Israel. And he went and told his parents. And suddenly the police arrived into the bowels of this ship and dragged my husband off. Oh, my word. And so he... But he was an ardent Zionist and that when we met, we both had this dream, we must somehow get to Israel. So it took us a long time because, as I said, his father was in business together with Neville and Neville took an increasingly uh, greater role in, in the business. So finally, uh, I would say I had a, a, also a strange story because I was a 10-year-old in 1948 and went to Cheda. Now, it was a Jewish area in London uh, where we where we finally got to in Wilsdon, having managed to get together with, with, with other people and, and live in, in, in London. And so uh, before going into the main synagogue, which was where my parents used to go and and we used to go as traditional Orthodox Jews. The children had a children's service and prepared them for what would be said in the shul, you know, the different uh, prayers. And the person who led this was called Mr. Morris Brody. He was the headmaster of the Cheder, which wasn't a Cheder where, you know, it was something where you went after school to learn uh, every after your ordinary school three times a week. But on Shabbat morning, he took the service. And he was very cool, calm. On one particular morning, he rushed in, very flustered, very pink. And he said, children, children, stand up, stand up. Today, a miracle has occurred. Today, we have a country of our own. Well, we stood up, we stood up, we scraped our little chairs behind our little desks and we stood up. And then he said, now we have to sing Le Morada Tea. So there we sang, Le Morada Tea, and so on and so forth. And then he said, and now you have to sing the Hatikva. Oh, we all stood there and we sang, and so on. So then what has happened? What has happened? Uh, we have a country of our own. We have a country. So I couldn't understand it. 
I thought I was in my own country after all we'd been through. I thought I rushed to my parents. I said, Mummy and Daddy, listen, Mr. Brody said we have a country of our own. Isn't this our country? And they said, no, this is not our country. This is the country which has been good enough to take us in. But we now have our own country. I said, well, where is it? Oh, they said it's a far, far away, far away. It's very hot and dusty. And it's called Israel now. So I said, well, when are we going? When are we going to our own country? And they said, well, we've taken such a long time getting used to being settled here. It's very hard. The work is hard. The language is hard. The culture is hard. And we cannot start again. We're going to get back to that shortly. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on 101.9 Chai FM Radio on the Finding Human program. My guest today is Dr. Percy Krause, and we are talking about her remarkable journey from, uh, it was actually Leipzig to Israel, to, to London via Isle of Man, an, an amazing story. And at the moment, she's telling me a story about when Israel was founded in 1948. She was 10 years old and singing the songs. I mean, that's very moving. I'm back with you again. Go on, please, Percy. Yes. So from that moment on, I decided that I'm going to go one day from that moment. And, you know, you, you did... Uh, ask me, um, some, you did mention in some of the ideas that you thought we might talk about was as a psychotherapist, which I am today, Baruch Hashem, um, what, 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 what sort of like, um, tips would I give, so to speak, in coping? How, how, how do people, you know, are there tips to cope? Well, uh, the thing is this, that I think, that when I was little girl, and I think all of us when we are children, we might have a moment when something gives us a spark of courage or a spark of encouragement. It might be a person. It might be B'nai Kiva. It might be flowers enjoying nature. But something gives you something which fills your inner batteries and makes you motivated to do something with the batteries, with the energy from the batteries which have been filled. And so I think my batteries were filled at that point to say, I'm going to Israel, but I'm always going to try to do something which when I get there will be useful, will help to build the country. And that's why the studies that I undertook were those studies rather than music, art and drama, which I actually love. You could have easily done, yeah. It's very yeah. interesting what you say that, you know, you, with the whispers to the soul really is what, what you're talking about. And, and Ellie Wiesel said, religion is not man's relationship to God. It is man's relationship to man. And what you are saying is exactly that. You wanted to know how you, you tried to see how you could help others. That's been your, your life motto, I think, hasn't it? 
And that was one of the, the stories that I did ask you. Uh, I mean, one yes. of the things was being a psychotherapist. Yes. What can you do in those situations? So yes. go on. So then when did you meet Neville? So, so I met Neville through a, a rabbi who had been the rabbi in Sheffield where Neville was. And he came to London to be the rabbi of the shul, one of the shuls that uh, were in the vicinity of Wilsdon. There were three shuls. And so I decided I'm going to go along to this rabbi's shul, Rabbi Ben-Sion Lapian. Well, when Rabbi Ben-Sion Lapian stood up and spoke, you could hear the walls shake. And this little shul that was practically empty before he arrived became absolutely packed. And he was an ardent Zionist. And he he related once when we were speaking, actually, on one of the Parshat HaShavua, he said, in Israel, he said, actually, leaves grow through the cracks of the wall. Oranges grow from nothing. And if I open the orange and look at it, I can see the blood of my brethren and we have to live and we have to build up Israel wherever we are. And of course, this remarkable man not only introduced Neville and I, but he's, he was offered a job in Jerusalem, originally in charge of a washateria where people go, they, they have these machines to do your washing. And, you know, students who don't have their own washing machines and they can do their washing in these washing machines. And he said, I would rather be the uh, Menahel, you know, in charge of a washateria than to be a rabbi in England. Well, eventually, eventually, he was given a very prestigious position in Devar Yerushalayim in a wonderful, wonderful yeshiva. But that was Rabbi Lapian who introduced Neville and I. So oh, that was a real bracha. That was absolutely. a bracha. And then when, when, what was your age when you got married? You say that Neville was, was 10 years older than you. So how old were you when you got married? I was, when we met, when we met, it was immediate magic. And so he said to me, you know, he said, I, I'm 29, but only just. And I said, well, I'm 19, but nearly 20. And that was it. And we three months later we got married. What did your parents think of him? Oh, they they just they just fell for Nat Neville. Uh, he fell for my mother's potato for my mother's potato luckies. And of course she she played the piano like a dream and she sang. So my mother studied she studied opera. Uh, actually, in Dresden, where she was born, but of course, being from, she was from a religious family, and she could not go on the stage and perform because it would mean breaking the Shabbat. But she would sit at the piano and play. Now, um, you you did mention at the beginning how things are in 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 Israel today, and you, I'm sure that you know that. For our remarkable, remarkable army, which is giving so many korbanot, so many sacrifices in order to win this battle of iron wills, really, we managed to uh, rescue two hostages yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, these two hostages have been reunited with their families. And in Israel today, it is a bitter, sweet existence. Because on the one hand, 
we are coping with losses. My grandson, one of my grandsons, has been to four funerals of his friends. Mm. Um, a, a, another grandson who was in the engineering corps, I, I must tell you this, he has just been released after three months in Gaza. He mm. is the father of three little children, and there's one on the way. And we had a Thanksgiving part, event party for him at my son's home, son and daughter-in-law, so that we were all together. And I, I, I sort of fell around his neck. I was so emotional. Mm. And he said in my ear, he said, Safta Omi, it, I said, what you've done for us is so wonderful. He was setting off the explosives with detonate house. He said, no, it's not what I've done for you that's remarkable. It's what you've done for me. I said, what have I done for you? He said, it's your courage, your parents' courage. And also his mother, her parents, family Schlesinger, escaped as well with the remarkable stories from Hungary and Czechoslovakia. He said, you and your and my grandparents, they're the ones that have given me the courage and given us all the courage to fight for you. And I haven't written Wonderful. about that. I don't think I've shared it till this very moment, Sue. But you know, that actually this is... makes me very tearful because, you know, that we often talk about intergenerational trauma. But look at those lessons that are learned in that intergenerational journey of the Jews, that your grandson can say that to you, that that's where he's getting his courage and his resilience from, how absolutely remarkable. Mm. Yes, yes. So, and, and I think, you know, that that is what we are going through. And, and I think the world is with us. I saw your, I didn't catch your actual grandchildren, but I saw this fantastic uh, demonstration that, that was made uh, you know, in South Africa, and you said it was in your area. I yes, was, was so my, my grandchildren's school. It was at King David uh, Lingsfield High School. And I must admit, I really did look. I, I wasn't sure if it was the high school and the junior school together because there were a lot of children. But they certainly sang Am Yisrael Chai with such passion. Wasn't that wonderful? And the flag, waving the flags and yes. seeing their faces glow. I feel that you are all with us, all giving us a great deal of encouragement. You can't all physically be here. I know that. I mean, because we have still family abroad, but you are with us emotionally. And I know in South Africa, you're going through tough times. So I want to send you Am Yisrael Chai, you also are part of our history and you also will succeed and overcome because all that we have to do is to be together. And I think that is another great clue to what gives us all strength. We pick up the phone, speak to a friend, meet. You can be in a knitting club, a writing club, a book club, join a club, a gardening club or whatever it is to gather together and share and not feel alone. I think that is so, so important. And that's, you know, perhaps uh, just a simple thing that, that we can all share together. I think, I think your advice is really so welcome because without doubt, uh, the diaspora Jews 
I can speak for myself, uh, we are feeling guilt. You know, uh, a lot of my friends, I would say most of my friends, have family in Israel, and we are so torn between being here with our other family, being there, and seeing what's going on in Israel, and of course watching. I'm on every single news site imaginable, and it's it's very frightening. But at the same time, I realise the connections is so important. We're going to get back to that shortly. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on one hundred one point nine High FM. This is Sue Jackson on the Finding Human program on one hundred one point nine High FM. My guest today is Dr. Pessy Kraus, and you will hear that we're talking. She was telling me about the people um, hostages who were released yesterday. When you actually hear our program, it will already be a week later because we are doing a pre-record. Now, uh, Percy, we were talking about how important community is and connecting with one another. Being there for each other, I think, is so important in this time. It's part of that resilience that we're all being asked to tap into at the moment. Now, I, you, when you eventually got, we're going back a bit, but when you eventually got to Israel, you said that your, I think your grandson was there first. Is that right? No, my, my brother was there first. Okay. Oh, yes, my son was there for, first of all, my brother I was there. he for, was 16, didn't you say, when he left? My son, yes. My yes. son left Sheffield, my my eldest son. In England, he was called Simon, and but he is called Shimon, named after a rabbi great-grandfather from Hungary. And he said, when he was 16, he said that, he he would like to be a more knowledgeable Jew, not just a practicing Jew, because in Sheffield the Jewish education was 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 not very broad, to put it mildly. And so, so and so off he went, off he went, and uh, he had uh, we managed he managed to get into what was a very at the time very well thought of. Uh, Yeshiva High School with a pnimia where you could live in called Nativ Meir. And I, that was in uh, 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 September when I came to see him and he had no relatives at all. And when I came to see him at Hanukkah time, which was three months later, he had filled 12 exercise books with tiny little catching up on all the work that he was trying to do. And I said to him, listen, you better come back to England. This is much too tough for you. He was pale and he was thin and, you know, oh no, he said, I'm sticking it out. This is my place. I'll manage. And really, he really, he, he re- really was the trigger that I said to my husband, right, now you'll have to tell dad, my father-in-law, that that's it. We're off next year, no matter what. So we, so my father-in-law he really said, well, you know what? You go with my blessing because it's a wonderful thing that Shimon, named after his own father, is now setting the path. He was an ardent Zionist as well, my father-in-law. I mean, there are amazing stories about he. He actually landed in the sea trying to get to Srel at one point when the plane ran out of... Anyway, that 
out of petrol. But that's another story, another story. So uh, many I think beautiful I'm... stories of, of the seven of the heavenly touch, quite honestly, Bessie. That's right. That's right. So then yes. you got to Israel. Now you told me about your your grandson coming out. And uh, is that Noam that you're talking about? No, no. Uh, my grand, my son who came, his eldest son is called Noam. Yes. And that and grandson. He was, a, he was a reserve paratrooper, is that right? That's quite right. He was. He was. And he, he was the one who actually, I have got a, another published story um, about about him and my other grandson, Aaron, because he's, he used to have chats with me. He's got a lovely wife and Bezrat Hashem, she's now expecting a baby. It seems it's going, this war is also creating a baby boom. It is really wonderful. And um, he was the grandson who said to me, uh, and I wrote it in the story, you know, Safta Omi, this is not just uh, a war of civilizations. It's not just a war of existence. It is a worldwide war of Jewish identity. And we are all being touched by who we are as Jews worldwide. And Israel is the trigger for that. And we're fighting for our Jewish identity in our own country. So it is an existential yes. war without doubt. And the, we have to dedicate everything we say to the IDF. Their strength, they're, they're not only fighting for, for Israel's survival, they're fighting for the diaspora Jews' survival as well. And I can read a bit of your the tale. If people want to look it up, they can. It's called Soldier's Tales, and it's by Percy Krause. And she says, grandson, reserve paratrooper Noam, visited me with his one young wife, Shira, explaining while tea vapors steamed up his sturdy army black frame glasses through lenses, intent gray eyes focused, reaching my heart with his explanation. And he said, we focus on our mission, motivations high, trainings professional, not only physical, but spiritual. As with Kavana, we pray sincerely intent in, on every word we say. The family boosts our morale when you send us special night torches we fix to our helmets. So we see in the dark, 60 pairs of socks, special pressure plasters so feet don't get sore. It helps you there. Keep sending parcels of nosh, of nosh, crisps, cakes, Coca-Cola, make sleeping sounder on fields wrapped ground. Our life's no feather bed. We're fighting a war for Jewish identity. And then you go on and you say, what a surprise comes knocking at my door. A uniformed soldier met him before. My younger grandson, nicknamed Aharoni, intelligence unit, gave him a furlough, came to visit me with Efrat, his mom. His brown eyes shine at my surprised delight. It's so beautiful. Grandsons, they're up in the north, down in the south. The Iron Dome's all the while being deployed. A Nobel Prize contender, supposedly. If so, better give it to our boys. Each one a noble defender of our only land, our home. Say no to vulnerability. Yes to positivity and unity. And you go on writing. It's so beautiful, Percy. So now just um, fill me in. So who is Aharoni? 
Aaron is named after my father. Oh. And he is, <laughs> yes, and he is the son of my third son, my young, I have three, we have three sons, mm -hmm. and uh, Daniel and Ephrat live in Ephrat, and uh, their eldest son has a family, he's too old already to go in the army, uh, and they have two daughters, um, and then they have three sons, and Aaron is the youngest, and he actually was finished. He, he is in the program, which is partly, which is called Hesder. It's part army and part yeshiva studies. Mm -hmm. So he was actually demobbed altogether. And then mm -hmm. suddenly he is called back. And he is sometimes on night duty for eight to ten hours and watching and, and the information that he gathers is given to the uh, mankal, to the um, to the, the people mankal. who are running the war. Yes, mm. the, you know, Hezi Halevi and all those people. And they visit Agarian. that unit. Yes, near Beersheba. They visit it regularly to gather information which cannot be given in any other way but personally by word of mouth. It's top, mm. top secret. And mm -hmm. so there he is. This gentle lad, he likes playing fur on his pian piano thing and studying in the yeshiva. There he is in uniform, losing weight because by the time he finishes his shift, it's breakfast. He's too tired. He can't eat breakfast. He goes to sleep, has supper and goes back on to. But he said, mm -hmm. doesn't worry him. I said, but, but our... <laughs> Yeah, we're going to, we are actually being told to wrap up, Pessy, but you, you and I have got so much still to talk about. We didn't even nearly finish. But let me just say that, honestly, our blessings go to all your grandsons, your granddaughters, everyone, all the IDF, all the people that I know also who are in the IDF, who are not killers, but are having to go into the most terrible situations and be killers, and we are not. We're as a as a people. We are people loving. We we love children. We love babies. So for for our IDF to be looking at the devastation that is happening in in Gaza is and still having to go on fighting, so that we as a nation can survive is an incredible sacrifice that they are making. And Percy, what would you? How would you like to end? Well, I'd like to say that it is not a sacrifice. It is a dedication, actually. Oh, and you're right. Yes. Um, and, I, and I'd like to say that I wouldn't actually use the word killers because they are defenders. When they fire a gun, they know that it's defending us and they know that if not, the blood would be spilt, they would be all over Israel. We would be lost and nobody would have our own country, which Jews from all over the world can come. And so I would say that we are all proud of them. Thank you so much, Sue, really, for your wonderful dedication to the IDF of this program. But I think you're so right. I used the wrong words there. They are defenders. They're defenders of Israel. They're defenders of the diaspora Jews and what, what can I say? You know, you and I both just feel very tearful when we actually even think about it. 
But Percy, this is not the end of our programs. I'm being told to wrap up, but we're going to get back again. But I just wanted to just tell people that there is um, uh, uh, finding meaning in suffering. There's, it's going to be on at uh, the uh, David Lapati Center. If you want to know more about it, it's how we often we are faced for me uh, to search, have to search for meaning in the face of challenges. I'm actually on, uh, going to be talking there as well. And it's on the 28th of February, 2024 at 1930 to 2045 at the David Lapata Center, 50 rand per head. If you want to know more about it, please go on to social services at jhbhev.co.za. It's the Hebrew uh, Kedisha Social Services. And Percy, thank you once more, and may all our soldiers be blessed, and may all of you in Israel stay safe. Thank you, and Am Yisrael Chai.